0: All summer long, we've been in a sermon series about unrealistic expectations and where they come from. And the one that we'll be addressing today is about our motivation, is our entire duty as Christians simply to convert other people and make more Christians. And some of us are immediately going, yes, of course, and others are going, wait, is that really it? And so today, you might be surprised to see that we are talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And many of you are probably very familiar with this, and so it'll be entirely incumbent on me to come up with some new way to talk about it to you. Get ready. As we are exploring what is expected of us, there is a passage about this explicitly in the gospel account of Luke, and to kind of set the scene for you a little bit, Jesus has been out teaching, and his disciples are with him, and there are others gathered around, and a lawyer shows up. Now, the lawyer would be among that class of people referred to repeatedly in the scriptures as scribes and Pharisees. He might have been a scribe, but certainly he was of that. And the scribes and the Pharisees were not of the priesthood, but they were scholars. They knew the Torah, those first five books, in the holiest part of the Hebrew Bible. They were Fluent in the commandments and what was expected they taught other people so that they could be right before the lord and so the lawyer shows up and says to jesus as a means of beginning this debate and conversation you know what is it that i must do in order to have eternal life what is it that i have to do it's kind of all about me isn't it what is it that i must do and so jesus says you're a lawyer you've read what did you read there and the lawyer comes back with the Shema, which is out of the book of Deuteronomy. I have to love God with all of my mind and my heart and my spirit and my strength. Oh, and my neighbor is myself. Jesus says, You're correct. Very good. Go and do it. You know what you have to do. Now you just have to go and do it, which is really the hard part, if we're honest. Mm-hmm. But the lawyer's not done. He's had his opening volley, and Jesus has responded. So now he moves in for the kill, and he throws down the gauntlet. And just who is my neighbor? In the world of Jesus and his disciples, it was very clear who they thought was their neighbor, people who looked like them, people who acted like them, people who worshiped like them. The idea that you would be asking means that he's the lawyer is trying to engage Jesus in all of the 613 commandments of the Torah which will go back and forth and let you know that according to certain times and seasons some people are your neighbors and some are not there are some people that you engage with and other times you don't there are some people that you should never engage with and some people that you always must engage with they are forever your neighbors and so he's asking Jesus to basically give him a doctoral thesis on who his neighbor is and I love how Jesus goes right into a story not even let me tell you a story just moves right into the story and starts to tell him this parable that we are very familiar with if we've been around the church for about a Sunday and a half. We're very familiar with this one. There's a story, there's some guys, there's a Samaritan. Well, if we pay very careful attention to names and titles, I think the story will say something very appropriate and shocking to us. The first is that the man who's even the catalyst for this discussion is named by his title and his role. He is a lawyer. And then there's Jesus, who is, who is using his earthly name. Then you have the story. And in the story, it says that a man, not by name, not by title, not by affiliation or covenantal status, it is a man. It is a human being. Jesus starts out with a human being. And says there was a man, and he was walking. He was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He had probably finished worshiping at the temple and now was returning back to his hometown of Jericho. And as he went, this was a treacherous road between Jerusalem and Jericho. As he went, there were bandits and robbers there. They ambushed him. They beat him. They stripped him naked. And then they left him for half dead after they had robbed him. And then we get the next part of the story. So what now? There's a human being who has been abused and battered and physically assaulted and is lying half dead on the side of the road. The first person to show up after this in the story is a priest. Now, if we're going to use the biblical language, this would be somebody of the Sadducees. This is someone who knows exactly what the 613 commandments are because it's his job to make sure that Israel is making their sacrifices in accordance with them. He receives their offerings in the temple and continues to be part of the sacrificial system. He shows up, and he's so abhorrent over what has happened that he decides to cross the road and go on his way. Doesn't bother with the man, doesn't say, hey, I'll be right back, I'll get you some help just turns a blind eye and walks on. The next person to show up is a Levite. This is kind of a lesser level of clergydom. In fact, the Levites were that tribe of the Israelites who didn't receive land when they entered into the promised land. This is the group of people who were given cities that would be sanctuary cities and a very specific, important role in the sacrificial system of the temple and its antecedent, the tabernacle. These were people who also understood the law, who understood what the Torah said, and they were part of the assembly that would gather together and help and assist the priests. This person also crosses the road and turns a blind eye and walks on by as a man is laying dying. And then the Samaritan shows up. Now, for most of us that aren't from Jesus' time, we go, Yeah, a Samaritan. So, what's a Samaritan? Don't worry, I'm going to tell you. A Samaritan is a person that jews abhorred samaritans were the people that came into the existence in the scriptures through the anathema that was assyria taking over the northern kingdom of israel when assyria invaded their model for conquering was to displace people to take tribes of the israelites and move them out into their empire and then move other peoples in they polluted the land forever They brought in these people that didn't know the Lord. They brought in these people that didn't know how to worship the Lord. They brought in these people that didn't know how to eat and keep kosher. They brought in these people who wore mixed fabrics and did all kinds of weird, bizarre things, and they worked on Saturday. And they brought them in, and these people, having settled in the land with what remnant there was of the ten tribes in the north, started to worship the Lord, but they did it their way. They started to set up their own altars on the hillsides and worship in their own kind of way and all of the Jews down in Judea in the southern kingdom said that is not appropriate. First of all they all knew that you should make that tremendous trek and come all the way down from the northern kingdom into the southern kingdom and visit the temple. That you should make this incredible pilgrimage not once, not twice but three times if you were male every year and that in the event that you should sin outside of that you should be making special pilgrimages as well. Well They looked very poorly upon the Samaritans that had moved into the north. They were constantly treating them as second-class citizens, even though they worshiped the same God. And so when the Samaritan shows up on the scene, all those that were listening to the story would go, you, a Samaritan. And the Samaritan shows up and does something absolutely radical and profound. He walks over to the man. This is somebody who is bloodied and naked, two huge taboos in the Torah. This is somebody who could be laying in wait. This could be part of a trap. This is a signifier that something bad has happened and a lot of people would turn the cheek and run the other way. But instead, the Samaritan goes over, assesses the man's need, and immediately responds. He immediately takes what he has, his time and his resources and his energy, and he pours it into the man literally. He bandages his wounds using his precious oil and his wine. The wine is an antiseptic and the oil is a balm for healing to to help that healing process. Then he puts him on his own animal so that now he must walk and walks into the closest village. There he finds an inn. He checks into the inn and he takes the man with him. And it says the next day, so it sounds like he actually stayed overnight with the man, not going along his journey, but taking time to make sure that the man would be okay. And at no point does it say that this man ever regained consciousness, gave his name, gave his gratitude. But the next day, the Samaritan gets up and says to the innkeeper, I'm going to give you two denarii, and I want you to take care of him. This is room and board. And in that day, two denarii was two months' worth of room and board. How many of you feel confident right now that your health insurance would give you two months at the hospital? Two months' worth of room and board. And says, and if you will spend any more, I will come back and I will pay you. Signs his name on the ledger. I will be responsible for what you spend to get him well. And the story doesn't give us any resolution. We don't know whether the Samaritan came back and the man was joyful and exuberant and was like, yes, you're right, I love Jesus. You know, we have no idea what happened. He could have gotten better and wandered off and the Samaritan could have come back and had another two denarii and a bill. We don't know. All we know is the radical response. And why? What was the catalyst for this response of the Samaritan, this person that shouldn't know how to serve the Lord? How did this person respond like this? The text says, Jesus is very clear, he had pity. Now, we live in a culture that says, I don't need your pity, I don't want your pity. But the definition of pity is a response born out of sorrow and compassion. How many of us want People to be moved for us out of sorrow and compassion. I'll tell you what, there are times where we will. When we are suffering, when we are mourning, we do want people to be moved from pity. To be with us in the ministry of presence. To pray with us in a ministry of prayer. To help us if we have needs, whether we need meals or to have our lawns cut. Or to help us receive whatever needs we have met. Because we are suffering. Right after I got here, I had to do a funeral for a 19-year-old who committed suicide. And I will never forget, I don't think this sanctuary has been that packed since. They actually circled the building, waiting to come in and pay their respects. And that day, hundreds of people gathered here to mourn and to give thanks to God and to offer their condolences to his mother. And I still talk to his mother. And she says to me repeatedly, you know, there are some days where people say to me, you just need to move on. You need to focus on your other child. You need to, you know, just give all that up to God, and you just need to get over it. She says, I just want, for once, for somebody to mourn with me, to recognize the loss, that my child is gone, and to be compassionate about that. And so when a Christian chooses to respond to her in that way, that's when she knows that God is with her. That's when she knows because pity is powerful it's the catalyst in the story sorrow and compassion move the samaritan to do things that the priest and the levite refused to do and so here he responds graciously abundantly over the top for a stranger and we don't even know who this stranger is he's just a human being is he a gentile is he a jew He could have been a Pharisee or a Sadducee. We don't know who he is. All we know is this. He's a human being. And so the response is a human being. And if you've been following along with the news, then you know that we do not yet live in a world where human beings are treated as equals. Hatred and violence still thrive against certain people. We know that we are a people that need to speak out, that need to respond with compassion and out of sorrow for this brokenness we know that this is necessary and so in the story when the samaritan responds this way jesus then turns around and says to the the lawyer so you tell me which one acted like the good neighbor he can't even say samaritan well the one that responded with mercy jesus says that's it go and do that You, O Pharisee, O scribe, O lawyer, you go and be a Samaritan. What a smack on the face that was. You, who proclaim to be the Messiah, you want me to lower myself to be a Samaritan. No, I want you to be a human being that responds to the needs of another human being, is what Jesus says. I want you to go and do what all of the Torah is asking you to do, to love God and love others in your compassion, in your mercy, your amazing acts of kindness, your outpouring of love and concern for those who are hurt and suffering, broken and beaten and robbed. I want you to respond for them. So when people say, Christianity is just about making converts. Well, you can convert people to all kinds of things. You can convert people in their way of thinking. You can convert people to your political party. You can convert people in the way you cook something versus the way you dress. There are all kinds of ways that you can convert people. And I encounter plenty of people who will tell me, oh, I'm a Christian. Okay, so where's your church? Where's your community of faith? Well, I don't really have one. You don't worship anywhere? No, I don't don't really. I'm not practicing. You're not practicing. Do you pray? Do you read the Bible? No. So in our culture, can you be a lawyer or a doctor and not practice? I mean, you might retire, but I think you have to practice beforehand. I don't think you can go right to retirement. I'm pretty sure you have to practice in order to claim that name. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to say. Go and do. He's talking to somebody who knows all the right things. He's talking to somebody who can spit back out exactly what should be happening here. I know what the Shema says. I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to worship the Lord and love the Lord with my heart, my mind, my spirit, and my strength, and my neighbor. Yeah, that little piece at the end, that's the do part, says Jesus. That's the part where you have to respond. You must do something. We are not here to simply make converts to Christianity. You can make a convert in Christianity by watching the TV sometimes. I know people that had a powerful conversion experience by watching The Passion of the Christ. It's not enough instead jesus says go and do and when you start doing that is the discipleship piece in the united methodist church we don't believe that conversion is enough we don't even believe that that's our mission the mission of the global church of the united methodist church is that we are to make disciples of jesus christ for the transformation of the world and that is the key we are people that are yearning and looking for transformation I'm wearing a shirt that you can't see because it's underneath my robe, and it says, Church, a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Now, if you go and you Google that, you'll find out that my shirt is actually quoting Abigail Van Buren, or some of you may know as Dear Abby. What you don't know is that she is actually quoting and paraphrasing St. Augustine, who said that the church is not a hotel for saints, but a hospital for sinners. So whether we consider ourselves here to be sinners or saints, we recognize that we have come here because we are broken. We are flawed. There is something in us that does not represent the good creation in which we were made. We are not magnifying the glory of our Lord and Savior in whose image we were created. Left to our own, all we do is produce sin and hurt and suffering. We give rise to evil in the world. We need to be fixed. We need to be soothed. We need to have our wounds healed so that we stop perpetuating hurt and violence, words of anger and distress, that instead we would start to reflect the one who came, not to condemn the world, but to heal it. We come here to the church because we worship the great physician, not just of our bodies and our minds, but of our spirits, the one who tells us that not only can we be healed, but we can be transformed. We look for that. We look to be transformed. It is embodied nowhere more fully than the communion table. Sometimes we think we're coming up here to get a little taste of Jesus. We come up here to taste God's grace, to be reminded that at some point there will be radical hospitality, the the looks and the feel of like the world has never seen, unending celebration and feast in the kingdom to come. And we think, okay, I've got it. How often do we forget that we come here because the liturgy and the church and the words of Jesus Christ promise us transformation here. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we might be the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. We are crying out for transformation. And we see this, we see this. God was so brilliant to put it into creation. There is no bigger example of transformation than what happens when a caterpillar goes into a cocoon. And often we co-opt this for Easter, but Jesus didn't come out transformed. He came out with the same body on Easter. It's better to think of it like this. If you pay attention to caterpillars, and most of us do it by trying to get rid of caterpillars, but if you pay attention to caterpillars, you'll notice that they spend all of their time gorging, usually on what you don't want them to eat. They're gorging and getting fat And then they spin their cocoon, they go into their chrysalid, and there, something happens. I started to research this because I am clearly no scientist. But I found out that they actually put out their digestive juices and they completely like melt their bodies, which sounds disgusting. Don't open a cocoon, because all that's going to come out is this mush. They actually break down to just these very small pieces unrecognizable of what they once were breaking, broken down just to their essence the quintessential pieces that you must have in order to make a butterfly or a moth and there inside transformation happens and before they break open out of the chrysalid and the cocoon they have to be formed again reformed in this greater image where they grow wings and they are given the opportunity to fly To leave a life of gorging and move into a life of soaring and exploration. And becoming part of a system where they pollinate and help other things grow where before they destroyed. But you can't help them do it. If you cut open the cocoon, if you try to pry it open, you will cause death and destruction for the moth or the butterfly within. They were created to have to work. They have to use those wings to gain strength and to dry them. And if you help them by thinking that if you do all the work, then they will just give the glory to God, they will die. They must be part of their transformation. And so when they come out and they beat their wings and they dry and they built up that strength, only then can they launch for the skies. We are asking for that same transformation. Before before we understood who we were, before we recognized how we sin and the pain and suffering we bring into the world, we were gluttonous caterpillars, consuming and consuming and destroying, taking what was beautiful before and putting in holes and webs. But then, God comes to us and wraps us up in grace, cocoons us in it and says, I will transform you. I will make you into something that you cannot yet fathom. No caterpillar thinks it's going to be a butterfly. And then through this process that is work and struggle and engaging with God's grace, we emerge different. We emerge as something that we never would have thought we could be. And that's when we start giving glory to God. People don't often say, let's get a whole bunch of caterpillars and decorate the sanctuary with them. But people love to see butterflies because they remind us that life comes forth. They remind us that we can be transformed. And notice how different and diverse butterflies and moths are. Some fly by day, some fly by night, different colors and shapes. And yet they fill the skies with God's glory of transformed creation. They fill the skies, we fill the earth. So when we ask ourselves, is it all just about converting? No, it's not. Because after your conversion, if you're going to eat another meal or go somewhere or or live for another two hours, Jesus says, go and do. Go and do. You can love God in your mind and in your heart, in your spirit, and with all your strength, but don't forget your neighbor. Don't forget to go and do, to love radically and profoundly. What I introduced to you before the Benevolence Fund, that is radical response. That is a Samaritan fund. It is where people cry out in their moment of need, naked, broken, battered, humiliated, and ashamed that they need help. And they cry out to people that they do not know by name. They don't know any of us. My favorite is when they come in and they're like, can I talk to your pastor? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> Are you going to go get him? No. Okay. Then they start talking to Kelly because Kelly looks normal next to me. (laughs) Will you go get him? No. In fact, he's not here right now. He will be back in a little while. Why don't you tell me your story? And when Jesus gets back, we'll talk. Because we believe That our response to the needs of people should be so overwhelmingly filled with compassion and kindness that they stop and go who are you? Who are you? Why would you pay my rent? Why would you fix my car? Why would you help my child who is stranded all the way down in Louisiana get back here to Crozet? Why would you build a fence for somebody who lives so far out they could never come to your church? Why would you do these things? And you're not going to charge me anything. No. It's not alone. It's called grace. It's not about trying to get somebody converted. It's trying to give somebody some glory to experience what God can do. That is what we are doing as the body of Christ. And half of these people never come back and say thank you. Half of these people don't know that you have such a weird-looking pastor. <laughs> All they know is, That in their moment of need, some body of Christ by the name of Crozet, United Methodist, was a Samaritan to them. That's what they know. And they know that for reasons completely beyond rationale and understanding, there are people that will feed you without requiring you to go to worship. There are people that will give you money and resources without requiring you to give them anything. There are people that will forgive you anything. My mother used to tell a story back when she was working in the OR, in the operating room, and she worked in this gastroenterology suite, and all of the doctors were Jewish. And so they would stand around and have religious conversations while they were doing colonoscopies. That's what's going on. And they were having this conversation one day, and one of them said, well, you'll have to ask Vicki, because she's a Christian, she'll know. And somebody said, well, what kind of Christian are you, Vicky?" And she said, I'm a Methodist. And one of the doctors goes, oh, Methodist, you people forgive anybody anything. She goes, that's the point that's who we are. We are so transformed by God's radical forgiveness, love, and grace for us that we will do it for someone else. We will do it for people that are Pharisees and lawyers and scribes. We will do it for Sadducees and Levites. We will do it for people that we don't even know or like. We will do it for people that don't look like us, that don't talk like us, that aren't our same age, that don't live in the same zip code. We will do it for people that we will go, I really don't want to have anything to do with you, but I love you in the name of Jesus Christ. We will do it because this is what God gave us to do. And we will do it because when we were sin-sick sinners, God gave us the balm of Gilead. We will do it because when we thought that no one could possibly love us, when we look at the things that we have done, the things that we have thought, and God help us the things that we have said, we thought no one could forgive us. When we had done things that had manifested themselves in felonies and misdemeanors and prison time, and we thought no one will ever forgive us, Jesus Christ said, you are mine and I died for you. And I have a people that will love you. I have created for you a place where my grace is bigger than your sin. And your identity is mine. You are mine. And so we come here and we come to the table because every single one of us needs a dose of God's grace today. Every single one of us needs to know that Jesus is ours. Because when we leave this place and we go back out into the world, because you're not staying here, it's not a museum. When you go back out into that world, when you go back out to your lives, to your spheres of influence, to your homes, to your schools, to your jobs, when you are down at the grocery store, when you're out and about, when people encounter you, they need to know that Jesus Christ lives in you. They need to know that you are on the path of healing and that they can come along. They need to know that there is a place for them And that place is not just in a pew. It is not just in a membership role. That place is in the heart of Jesus Christ. And you are the one that will tell them. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crosayunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.